Lord, you want us, you want to be our Savior and our God, Lord, and for us to be your people. So as your people, Lord, we just keep our hearts right and bow down to your name. We just ask that you pour your Holy Spirit into Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to all of you. So thankful you joined us here to worship Jesus together today and, and learn more of him. So, Father, we come to you with gratitude in our hearts that you're a good God. And when we consider ourselves, as the psalmist said, when we consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that you are mindful of him? And Lord, we know it's a very, very, very big universe, yet your attention is focused upon us. Your word, you tell us that you guide us with your eye. And we want to express our, our need for you. Lord, I don't know what my life would be apart from you, but I know I would have no hope and I'd have no future. But I'm so grateful for you, for all that you've done in my life, for those of us that have Come to Christ and receive forgiveness of sin. Lord, we have a glorious eternity waiting for us, and we praise you for that. It's your work and not ours, and grateful to be part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 If you'd open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, we're continuing on uh, in this, this incredible uh, book of Acts, and this chapter is one of my very favorites verses 22 through 24 today. The title of today's message is None of These Things Move Me. Let's read. Paul the Apostle wrote this. He said, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, Save or accept that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me or await me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. In this passage, Paul's continuing to give his sermon, which is actually a word of encouragement to the elders in the church at Ephesus. He knows that this is a goodbye for him. He will never see them again as it nears the end of his third missionary journey. So he gathered the Ephesian elders together in the city of Miletus. He wanted to talk to them about proper church leadership. This is like a final instruction that he's giving them as the, the leadership of the church is being transferred to them. But you know, these final instructions are not only instructions for them, they're instructions for us too. Not just the leaders, because the Bible teaches us that as Christians, we're all called to Christian service. We can't escape it. We're called as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's who God has made us to be. So wherever or whatever we are, we, you know, we could be servants in the church, right? Absolutely. We ought to be servants in our human relationships, in our marriages, in raising children, serving the Lord in the workplace as a member of the workforce or as an employer. Could be as a volunteer somewhere, you know, serving a friend, a neighbor, 
We're all called to serve. And we could go on and on and on with the opportunities that God gives us to serve him. And, you know, sometimes we, we confuse the fact that, you know, as, as Christians, we, have, we serve the Lord in the fellowship, and that's a wonderful thing. And I'm so grateful for those of you that serve here. But, you know, this is just a small, small piece of the week, isn't it? There's a whole other six days in the week, last count, opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most wonderful thing that we can do is bring his love to others. You know, Paul the Apostle would write to the Corinthian church, he said, without love I am nothing. And we can talk all we want. And we can talk all we want and we can talk a good game here. But you know what? The rubber meets the road when we leave here. Are we able to love others as we love ourselves? Are we able to love the Lord Jesus Christ as he commands? He said, listen, there's two great commands. I'm glad that he said it all falls on those two, but you know they're not easy. Love the Lord Thy God, with all our, your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and then love one another as we love ourselves. He said, on those two commands, hang all the law and the prophets. Which means that should we have an occasion to, to sin in, against another person somehow, it's, it's not loving, is it? No. That's why he said everything falls on those two commands, well, Paul, as he was speaking to these elders, he, he spoke of things that he personally demonstrated in his life, you know, personal integrity, how important that is as a witness for Christ, you know, certainly in the church as leaders and so on, but, you know, outside of the church, when others see you, is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? So personal integrity is important. Humility you know, Paul talked about himself as a, as a servant, a bond slave. We talked about this several weeks ago, a doulos. Esteeming others greater than ourselves. And of course, a servant's heart, a heart of service for Jesus. Nothing for Paul was considered menial or beneath him. He did what God asked him to do. The things that God put on his heart. We spoke about honoring the word of God. Paul emphasized this to the Ephesian elders. He said, we must focus in on the word of God. What else do we have? What other source of truth do we have that's an absolute truth that we can look to? You're in a situation, you can open up the word of God and God speak to me somehow, some way. I want to know what you know and I want you to make me know what you know. And God is faithful. He's given us his perfect and holy word. So he said, I want you guys, you leaders, to honor God by honoring his word, teaching it and preaching his word. Then, of course, last week we talked about the need to, to preach repentance. And we talked at length about what that means and what it doesn't mean and all that it includes. So very important. Well, the church at Ephesus was the most influential church in the region. So handing off the leadership to them was a very serious responsibility and a very large responsibility. Paul had spent three years there, so he knows he had, this had to be done right and in a way that would bring honor to God. Well, here in these verses, these three verses that we just read, Paul gives us some incredible statements that he provides, the most important statements he gives us in the entire New Testament because they're very personal to him. And these verses ought to speak very strongly to us, especially verse 24 that we just read. But none of these things move me 
neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Here in these verses, we have a glimpse of the heart in the mind and motivation of Paul, who he was, why he did what he did, and what is it that made him tick. And let's face it, Paul the Apostle is the most influential person in the history of the New Testament church other than Jesus Christ, of course. So any insight that, that you and I can gain from him, I'd say that's good stuff. It's very, very valuable to us. Well, what did Paul face in his calling? These are questions that, that we're, we can consider here. You know, how did he handle persecution? How did he respond to all the opposition? And he always faced opposition. How did he respond to the difficulties that he faced as a servant of the Lord Jesus? You see, ultimately, Paul would be beheaded as a martyr by Emperor Nero. Paul was imprisoned for his faith. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned and left, to de left, left for dead. Excuse me. But you know, God raised him up. And God continued to sustain this man. Why? Because God had a plan for him. So anything that Paul gives us here is, it's firsthand. He speaks for himself, and therefore, nothing could be more true than his personal testimony. Nobody can argue his testimony. In fact, nobody can argue your testimony either. This is what God has done in my life. And they can't say, no, he didn't. You can't argue. That's an inarguable point. Testimony is very powerful, and Paul gives us just a piece of his here. And what he gives us is priceless in these verses. Now, it's important to notice it was what he was facing in his life that prompted him to record this section in this sermon to the Ephesian elders. After four years, in his third missionary journey, he's eager, as we talked about, and he's very excited to get back to the city of Jerusalem so he could celebrate the Passover and along with him, as he visited churches along the way, the churches were very, very generous. And the church in Jerusalem was very needy, so they gave Paul gifts to bring back to Jerusalem. And this is what he did. It's unity in the gospel. Isn't it beautiful? We look out for one another. We care about one another. We love one another. At least we ought to. And it seems that the Holy Spirit gave Paul a word as he approached these various cities that he went to. God spoke to him. And notice what he said in verse 23. He said that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, in other words, spoke to him, saying that bonds, which are chains, and afflictions awaited him. Every city that he would go to, the Holy Spirit said, Paul, chains and afflictions await you. Now, how is that for a word of encouragement? It's like, sure, Paul, carry on, but don't forget that bonds and chains and afflictions await you. It appears that people were trying to turn Paul away from making his way to Jerusalem, doesn't it? Trying to get him to reconsider his plan. You know, he heard from God, he knew he had to go, Paul, you may not want to do that. There's bonds and chains, there's afflictions that are awaiting you. He could have very easily said, well, you know, you're right. I think I'll stick it out here. But no, no, no. He knew that wasn't God's plan. But you know, the, the word that people gave him, 
they loved him. They cared about him, and they expressed their concern for his physical safety. And of course, we can understand the concern and the warnings that they gave. Well, who would want to be chained in a prison? Chained in a prison cell. And then afflictions, which means hardship and tribulation, was awaiting him. There's something to look forward to, huh? In the Greek, the word afflictions is the Greek word thalipsis, which means there's a great crushing and squeezing, oppressing down on him that was awaiting him. And it it refers to and describes a crushing of grapes to produce juice. You know, you squeeze them, out comes the juice. Or to produce olive oil. What do they do? They squeeze the olive oil. Olives, they press the olives, and out comes oil. So there's something that takes place. It was also used as a mean of, means of torturous interrogation, where a person was laid on their back, and they would place a board on their chest, and then systematically keep increasing the weight, so that before long, they found it impossible to even inhale, couldn't catch their breath. It was to elicit a forced confession. This is what the Holy Spirit used to describe what awaited Paul in Jerusalem, and on his way. You know, sometimes life is like that, isn't it? You know, trials come our way that they can be very heavy. And it seems to take our breath away. And it doesn't matter how good we are, how godly we are, it doesn't matter how faithful we are to God's will, trials still come into our lives. We don't get to choose them, do we? Sometimes we'd like to choose them. But we don't get to choose them because God has a purpose in them. You know, James said this in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various temptations or trials, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. I find that verse very challenging. Count it all joy. Trial hits, yay! That's not easy, is it? Count it all joy, because there's something that God is doing in your life through this trial. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, you what? You shall have tribulation. He didn't say you might. He said you shall have tribulation. But you know what? It doesn't, I'm so grateful that verse doesn't end there. Jesus said, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Praise God for that. You know, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 48, verse 10, he said, behold, you know, God spoke to him, I have te- refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the fire of Afflictions. Paul, afflictions and chains await you along the way. Well, maybe this describes some of you today. Maybe there's a a thalipsis in your life. There's something pressing hard on you and heavy on you, crushing you. You can hardly catch your breath, and you think it's because it's something that you've done. And deep down, most of us go into that same default position. 
You know, if I do what's right, if I live a good life or a godly life, if I obey God's word, if I serve the Lord, then somehow this thalipsis, this pressing, this squeeze, and it's going to be prevented or mitigated. God says, no. It's absolutely not true. The Christian life is the greatest life a person could ever live, but it can also be very difficult and painful, can it? And let's face it. As Christians, we're like, we're like fish swimming upstream, and there's a whole cesspool flowing against us as we choose to live godly. There's a lot in this world that wars against us and wars against the Spirit of God and the truth of God's Word. Scriptures say those who live godly will suffer persecution. So therefore, you know, God has promised us that we're going to have trials, we're going to have difficulty, and we're going to have tribulation, which means to me that he must value it. And he must use it to shape us and to work in us. In the book of Romans that Paul the Apostle wrote in chapter 5, he said this, in verses two, three, four, 2 through 4, he said, Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's easy to do, isn't it? God, we rejoice in the hope that we have in the glory. One day we're going to see you face to face. And we can say hallelujah to that. It's powerful. It's wonderful. It helps us navigate this life. But then he went on and he said, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience works experience, and experience works hope. It just doesn't arrive on the scene. We go through things. That's what Paul is saying. The result of the tribulation is that it brings forth something godly in our lives. There's attributes of Christ that come forth from us as God guides us and leads us and ministers to us through these trials. And when you think about it, it's a process of, of change. It's a process of refining and how it's accomplished in us. God refines us through, well, Isaiah said, in the furnace of affliction. When you consider gold, maybe you've got a ring on your finger. It's gold, shiny, beautiful. But when you think about gold ore, to you and I, I mean, if you were to pick up a, a raw hunk of gold ore, you, it just looks like any other rock to me. But to the one who's called a goldsmith, you'd see something far different. He sees it in the refined state, in the pure state. Well, how does it go from just any other rock stage to pure gold? Well, the goldsmith, he places it in a little bowl called a crucible. And he heats it up, and he heats it up, he heats it up, he subjects it to flame to the point where it breaks down and melts. And all the impurities, they float to the top. The goldsmith takes those impurities, skims them off, and discards them. The process is repeated six more times, seven total. You know, the number seven in the Bible is the number of what? Completion. Seven total. Until the gold is pure, just as the goldsmith saw it. In fact, he'd be able to look into it and see his reflection. But that's what happens in our lives, too. You know, God refines us, and he sees us as refined, as the finished product, our potential realized. And you know what? His face is reflected in us as we're refined in him. 
but there's a process to get us there. And he purifies us in the exact same way, through refining trials, through difficulties and persecution. And in so, what's he doing? He's removing the impurities from our life, isn't he? God cares about us. He wants to skim off all that junk and leave behind something holy and pure. That's God's plan for us, you know, to be conformed into the image of his son. Peter the apostle, he wrote this in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. He said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. He's saying, so don't think of the trials and tribulations you go through as unusual or strange it's, or happening only to you. It happens to all of us or for all of us. And these trials are a deliberate action by our goldsmith, our Lord, who loves you enough to refine you. So the tribulations, they're, they're not haphazard. They are exact. They are planned they are measured. God's in control, so don't be discouraged in them. Simply abide in him. God, shelter me under the shadow of your wings because I want to trust you at every single move, every single trial. God, I want to trust that you're doing something in me. You know, Paul said tribulation works patience or perseverance. It's an ongoing process to bring us to patience. Now, why is this important? Because it makes me further submit to the loving hand of my, my Lord who works in my life. And it causes me to say something. It causes me to come into agreement with him. Okay, Lord, I've, I've done it my way long enough. And we've been through there, right? God, I've done it my way long enough. I've attempted to do my own refining, map out my own plan through the things of the world. I've sought peace satisfaction to things that I'll never find satisfaction in. Things like relationships or chemicals, alcohol, whatever. <coughs> Excuse me. God, I've attempted to, to be my own man. And the world encourages me to do so. But you know what? In each and every case, and believe me, I've been there. Each and every case, I come up empty, like sand just sifting through my fingers. Thought I had something, but no. There's still something missing. And it's the, the, the power and the authority and the love of God in my life and hope that I have in him. And apart from him, I will never have that. So God gets us to that place where we say, I can't do it anymore. God, I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to seek after you. I'm going to allow you to lead me. I'm going to allow you to direct me. And I realize that, that my life is not my own. You know, Jesus said, or Paul said, your life has been bought with a price. The price, of course, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, honor God in your body and in your spirit that are his. Paul said, my life isn't my own anymore. And you know, I'm so grateful for that. Because some folks think that that submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his lordship, your life's over. No, your life is just beginning. Yeah. And believe me, I thought those things before I came to Christ. So I don't need that. 
I'm fine just the way I am. And God, in his long-suffering and patience for me and toward me, showed me differently. Dan, you really need me. And I shared this with you many times. Even in high school, I laid awake many, many nights wondering, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? And, And I was a very religious person. I went to church every single week, sometimes more than once a week. But you know what? I didn't know. I didn't know the Lord. And therefore, I had an uncertainty in my heart about my destination. But God says, I don't want you to be uncertain. I don't want you to be afraid. I've got a plan for you. And my plan for you is an eternity with me in heaven, a glorious place, a wonderful place, a place where God says there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, no more suffering, because the former things have passed away. And he said, behold, I make all things new. That's what we have to look forward to. God wants wants our heart. And when we give him our heart, it's like, God would say to us, watch, watch now what I can do in you. Watch what I can do through you. And then you're going to marvel at my work. When we get to that point then, does it mean that the tribulations, the squeezing, the pressing is going to come to an end? No. I'd be lying if I said they do. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. It's because... Because God never gives up on us. Until we're perfected in heaven, God's still working in me, right? To will and do of his good pleasure and not my own. So it's a process, but it's a lifelong one. So don't get discouraged. These tribulations, the trials, they work for us and not against us. James said this in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation or trials, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Oftentimes, mankind in general looks at tragedy as a curse from God, when really it's a result of the sin of man. Remember Job's friends. Job went through incredible suffering, but he was a righteous man, the Bible says. They encouraged Job to curse God, Did they understand the purpose of Job's trials? No, they couldn't possibly have. According to James, trials are the means by which God's blessings flow. Our endurance in the trials and victory over them brings about strength and maturity. So how do I respond in trials? How do I respond when things get difficult? How do I respond when something comes from left field and hits my life in a very impactful way and I'm left kind of shaking? Or I feel that squeezing, that pressing, that ellipsis. How do I respond? Do I curse God? Do I get angry with God as a Christian? Do I doubt who he is or his love for me? Do I question his authority over my life or my motives? Do I resist the trial? Do I jump out of that crucible that God is using to refine me? Or do I jump off the potter's wheel as God is shaping these lumps of clay to make me a vessel of honor, do I jump off and say, I'm done? No, we can't do that. What do I do? I praise God because he has ordained these things in my life for my gain, for my growth, for my blessing, and most importantly, for his glory. 
You know, the, the music group Casting Crowns, I will praise him in the storm. It's a great song. And I will lift my hands, for you are who you are. You know, Job said, said this in his trials. He said, though he slay me, and believe me, he went through incredible things that none of us will ever face. Though he slay me, yet I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust my God. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't guess at it. He has a very specific plan. He simply desires to grow us through these trials. But we need to patiently endure and trust him through them. Allowing those trials to work patience and patience experience. And experience brings us to the place of hope. And then we can agree with the Apostle Paul. As he shared in chapter 8, verse 28 of Romans, he said, and we know. And again, he's, he's talking from personal experience here. He could say, and I know. And you can say that too. I know that all things work together for the good to them that love God under the call according to his purpose. And you know, and before I came to Christ, things happened in my life. And I said, how can, I could read this verse and say, how can it possibly, how can these things work together some good? But now, I know. God uses them powerfully, wonderfully, and complete me to complete me. Trials and difficulty is evidence of God's hand on our lives. He isn't going to let you go. He's got you in the palm of his hand. So when we find ourselves in these trials... And again, sometimes we convince ourselves of something wrong with me or something wrong I've done to warrant them, then you must understand there's nothing wrong with you. The same as there was nothing wrong with Paul. It was simply your faith being refined and you being strengthened. Do you know that for those of you that know anything about metal, when you bend a piece of metal repeatedly, it gets stronger. It's called work hardening. God, sometimes he bends us, and we get stronger too. And when we're being pressed, when sometimes we bend and God is strengthening us through these things, it's all to his glory and to our blessing. So in the middle of the trial, God's not going to lose you. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to let you go. He holds you fast. Then the right response on our part is, God, thank you for holding me through this. Thank you for ministering to me, to me through this. And I'm going to hold on to you with every fiber of my being. He's got his attention glued to us. He's guiding us with his eye. He's watching out for you. He's teaching you. He is refining you. And this is God himself that does it. Think about that for a minute. The creator of the universe. He's got you in his hand. He's holding you. He's caring for you. He's loving you. He's teaching you. He's extending his grace to you, his unmerited love. Even though I don't deserve his love, he gives it to me freely and openly. He has promised for me every single morning when I open my eyes, I got brand new mercy waiting for me. And praise God for that. He's got a grip on your life. 
And he's preparing us for heaven. When we get into these trials, our first natural instinct and response is self-preservation. Let's face it, it's true, and it rises to the top of everything else. The problem is when we're faced with such a trial, self-preservation becomes strong and more important to us than God's will for us. And we can make all kinds of decisions based on this. How, how can I stop this pain? How can I stop this difficulty in the quickest way? Or what will allow me to escape it the fastest? That's the natural reaction to difficulties. And like Jonah, we look for the nearest way to go in the opposite direction that God would have us to go. But it's important for us to realize that we shouldn't do that because ultimately it makes things much harder. Well, Jonah thought he could run away from God and God's will, but where did he end up? In the belly of a whale. I don't want to do that. So if you find yourself in this kind of place in your life, notice what Paul did in the face of upcoming hardship. The Holy Spirit said, bonds and afflictions await you. There are three things that he did, and they're all found in verse 24. We're only going to touch on the first one today. He said, none of these things move me. He refused to let any of his circumstances no matter how difficult, no matter how painful they were, to move him. And the word move in the Greek means to make or bring about a change. I will not allow this to make me or bring about a change of course. In other words, his course was set because he was following exactly what God did or designed for him to do. You know, think about Jesus on his life. Every single step led him to the cross and the scriptures tell us his face was set as flint. In other words, he didn't back off. He didn't change direction, didn't change course. He continued on in a plan that God the Father had for him to lay down his life and suffer a brutal death and pour out his blood so you and I can be saved and have our sins forgiven. Can you imagine if Jesus going through this said, well, you know, Father, this is getting kind of tough. I think I'm just going to go hang out with my friends, the apostles, now. I can't do this anymore. Where would we be? We would have no future. We would have no hope for heaven. Paul said, that's the way I want to be. I want to stay the course. I'm not going to allow any of these things to drive my decision-making. Paul purposed in his heart, there's no detours here. As an act of his will, he stood against all of the emotion that had burdened him. And it surely is an emotional thing. Can you imagine hearing those words? Hey, Paul, you're going to go through these cities and bonds and afflictions await you. Ooh, that would build up some emotion, right? But we cannot allow the emotion of the situation, and we all go through emotions, don't we? We can't allow the emotion of the situation to rule. Paul stood against all the reasons his mind could have come up with to cause a change of direction. But, but family, the power of the Holy Spirit that engaged his will. And because of that, Paul determined that he would not allow anything to move him. And he made the determination to continue in God's call upon his life no matter what the hardship. 
that God was using to do what? To shape him. He purposed in his heart not to be moved. And maybe he was encouraged by the psalmist. Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. In Psalm 62, verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. And there's those words again. I shall not be moved. So the question has to be asked. Are you being moved by some trial in your life or one that you see coming? Or in your Christian service, because of, you know, maybe you don't see the fruit. Maybe there's some apparent to you lack of fruit, not to God. Or criticism by somebody. Or maybe even self-doubt. Do you, anybody ever hear of self-doubt here? Anybody ever respond to criticism from somebody? Yeah. I mean, it could, we can be going this way, somebody criticizes, and all of a sudden, we're going to make a left-hand turn. Or spiritual warfare. Hey, the enemy isn't going to honor you in any way. He wants to drive you off course. Or maybe the threat or risk of a loss in relationship that can occur when we are walking with God. Are you willing and able to say, none of these things move me? From Paul's heart, He said, I'm not going to allow any of these things to move me. They will never drive me or dictate my decision-making concerning my Christian service. This is reserved only for God to change our course. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul said, for we are his workmanship. In other words, God's working in us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So if we are his workmanship, and if you belong to Jesus, we are, then we have to allow God to do his work. Otherwise, you're denying the hand of the potter in your life, saying, God, I think my way is a little bit better than yours. And we would never utter those words, would we? But we can think them. As we resist God's hand, we're saying, my way, not your way. And if we do allow that, if we allow ourselves to chart our own course, you know what that's going to mean? We are an unfinished work. What does that mean? I'm not sure what it means, but we clearly haven't allowed God to do all that he needs and wants to do in our life. We don't have that freedom to do so. Paul uses this occasion and occasion in his life and in the ministry, which, by the way, it stands against human reason and understanding to say in the face of these threats, Paul said, I'm going to choose to make a fresh commitment to God for my life. It stands against human reason and wisdom, doesn't it? No one does that in their own strength, their own determination, or own resources. It was God that gave Paul the grace and power to do what he asked Paul to do. So when the critics say, you're crazy, 
They could have said that to Paul. You're, you're crazy for going there. When the discouragers come your way, you and I can say, because I trust in God, none of these things move me. I won't allow them to move me. And when you make a statement like that and walk in the strength of God's resolve in your life, you get something. Want to know what you get? Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Amen. And it shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's what we have. That's what we get. Paul would never regret making the stand for God. And it's a stand that if we make, make that stand today, we will, we will never regret it at some point. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the fire, it's hard, isn't it? Sometimes it hurts. But then afterwards, you can look back and say, God, you did something in me through this. And I can't help but just praise you. There's something, some good. God, you're showing me that, oh, yes, all these things are working together for good. Because you know I love you. And I know I'm called according to your purpose. It's a stand that we need to make today. We need to make the same determination in the privacy of our hearts this morning. Whether it be one of us, five, ten, twenty, I don't know. Maybe it involves a commitment to fellowship in the church. God, I'm not going to allow anything to keep me away. I'm not going to allow anything to move me or making a stand in your marriage. God, I'm in this thing. Nothing is going to move me. Maybe in a ministry that God has called you to. But God, there's people discouraging me. Did God call you to it? Then none of these things move me. Amen. Or a job. That when you started, you knew God placed you there. Then all of a sudden, four years down the line or five years down the line, what am I doing here? These people that are around me, they don't like me. They don't like the fact that I stand for Christ. Don't forget where God has placed you. And can you say, none of these things will move me. None of these things will cause me to change the course that God has me on. And it's important for us as Christians that in this life that opposes the culture we live in, hardship doesn't give us the right to retake control of our lives, does it? No. Hardship is what God uses to change us. And if we do decide that, God, this is so hard, I'm taking matters into my own hands now. You're, you're taking it away from God. And God is infinitely wiser than you, smarter than you. He knows everything. He sees past, present, and future at the same time. What do we see? Right? We don't want to embrace self-rule. Our God knows best. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. And God tells us very clearly here. He said, 
my thoughts are not your thoughts. Aren't you thankful for that? Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down in the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. God said, I'm going to send my word out. It's going to prosper. I didn't make those verses up. God said it. And we may not understand it. You may not understand what you're going through. But that's okay. God doesn't call us to understand, but to trust him as the good father that he is. So we'll close here now with a couple of questions. Are you allowing something or someone to move you? You know God's plan for you, at least day by day. If he's called you to something, and maybe you haven't even said yes yet, maybe it's self-doubt. Are you moving yourself? Or is some circumstance you think is interfering, God says, no, don't worry about that. I'm going to take care of that. Or some person that might stand in the way and say, no, there's no way in the world God would have you do that. There's no way in the world that, that God would have you reach out to that person and just slam the door in your face for the 150th time. Will you allow that to move you? Or will you reach out knowing that God has asked you to keep on knocking on that door? Are you allowing anyone to move you? If so, what will you do? Forsake God's will for you or say, none of these things move me. None of them move me. God, count me in. Count me in. I'm watching you. I'm looking to you. I'm looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. And right now, God, that's all I see is you. Nothing else matters right now. Are you willing to make that commitment? To make that step? As hard as it may seem, it's always best. And you know, when I was first challenged with the gospel, And again, a very religious person for many years. And by religion, I mean I followed rituals and I did this and I did that and I did the other thing. What's that sound like? Ay, 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 ay. It's all about me, right? But when I was challenged with the gospel, that said, will you respond to the God that loves you and lay down his life for you that you can have a brand new life, not free of difficulties, 
not free of trials, not free of thalipsis, but will you trust God through that and allow him to have his perfect way in your life that you can come to him. And this is so remarkable to me that, that I can come to God just as I am. And God, you know I'm a mess. You know I'm a sinner. Why would you have me? And we can't even ask those questions. God, why would you have me? And you know what his answer would be? Because I love you. <laughs> because I love you. And it's not about what you have or haven't done. It's because I love you. And I want you. God doesn't ask us to do stuff. He, he asks for our heart. That's all he wants. Because his plan for humankind is that we would be forever with him in heaven. You know, the scriptures tell us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's a loving God. He's not a mean God. He's a caring God. He's a compassionate God. He's a God that understands you far better than you, than you understand yourself. And by his Holy Spirit, he draws us to himself with what? You know what it is, cords of love words of love. Come unto me, come unto me, come unto me. Those that labor and heavy laden, because I want to give you rest. God knows we struggle. And he wants to minister to us in our struggles. One final question. Will you respond to God's love today? And say, I need that. You know, man's greatest need is love, isn't it? And maybe people have turned their back on you. Maybe people haven't shown you love. But you know what? God loves you. Scriptures tell us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but through Jesus, the world would be saved. Isn't it glorious? He wants you. He wants to give you something that you could never, ever achieve in any other way, and that is a future with him and a hope. It's not like hope I'm there. No, it's, it's a rock-solid hope of eternity with God. And that's what moves us in this life and motivates us. I have a hope in Jesus Christ. So no matter, no matter what goes on in this world around me, I have hope. And my hope is in my Savior. So what do I do? How do I, how do I come into that relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it's a very, very important question to ask and requires an answer. How do I do this? Well, First thing is to admit, I'm a sinner. I'm not all I thought I was cracked up to be. And then to understand the serious nature of sin. And I often think of it this way. God thought sin was so serious that he sent his son to die for it. And sin has its consequences. And that is eternal separation from God. But God has a plan. 
He has a plan for you and me. He has a plan for sinful man. And he said, I've got a solution to your sin. And that is just to believe in my son, Jesus Christ, whom I sent from heaven. God himself sent from heaven fully God and fully man. Do I understand that? No. But I believe it to be true. And he would willingly lay his life down on a cross and allow a crown of thorns to be embedded in his head. Spikes piercing through his hands and through his feet, a spear in his side. Blood poured out. Why would God allow that? Because he loves you. And he's saying, what I want you to do is understand that when Jesus laid his life down on that cross and bled and died, he did it for a very specific purpose, and that is for you. The consequence and the penalty for your sin is death. That's the consequence. And God said, if you trust in my son, then you'll believe that the punishment that, I, that, that you deserve he took. And we can think about that and we can say, this is, this is just too good to be true. You mean to tell me that the punishment that I deserve, Jesus paid the price for. It's exactly right. It's exactly true. So with that is the importance of trusting in Jesus as the one who has paid the price to fulfill the mission that he has, and that is to bring salvation to mankind. And all he's asking is to trust him and to believe in the finished work of the cross and allow him to do whatever work. You know, you got to catch the fish before you clean them, right? Gary's a fisherman. He knows it better than anybody here. God wants, he wants you. So would you pray, pray with me, please? You can pray for me, too. But yeah, pray, pray with me. If you'd like to receive Christ and know that, that God's got an incredible plan for you, that's just waiting. He's waiting for your response. Would you respond in prayer? And Father, I, I do come to you today, and I realize that I've sinned in my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds, in the way that I've treated people. Lord, I agree with you. Those are sins. And I bring them to you now. I confess them to you. And I ask you, God, please, in your grace and in your love for me, would you forgive me of my sin? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who laid his life down on a cross and bled and died for me. Without that shed blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus, you bled for me. Please forgive me. I place my life in your hands and ask you to do whatever is necessary in my life that brings you glory and honor and praise. And Lord, 
I'm so grateful that your life didn't end in a tomb. You're risen from the dead. A miracle of miracles. And I know that you've just given me a brand new life. In a similar way, I'm raised from the dead. Be the Lord of my life. Help me to learn your ways through your word. To love you. To love others as I love myself. I make this commitment to you now. I'm asking you to help me through it. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.